This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the most unexpected podcast in the business. My name is Mark McGee, and today we're going to be talking about managing player expectations. I've got two designers here who did not even know that they were going to be here tonight. Josh Mills. Hello, everyone. Uh, Glad to be here. These are the first non-work people I'm talking to besides my children in quite a while. We'll see how it goes if I remember how to use the words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, words are overrated, especially on audio podcasts. Also, we have with us, for the first time ever since the beginning of the universe, Isaac Shalev. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Good to be here. So, Isaac has never been on the podcast before. And so that means we have the honor and privilege and pleasure to have the first timer palooza with Isaac Shalev. We've known, we being various people in the Game Designers of North Carolina, have known Isaac and known of Isaac for a while now, but only recently have you moved down to the area. Wait, you moved down, right? We're further south than where you used to live. I used to live in Connecticut. There's not a lot of further north than that. There's a little, (laughs) but not a lot. And so what comes with moving into the area is uh, now you're part of the guild. So that's cool. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm very cool excited. Ever since I saw the shirts at Unpub 20, I don't know, 13, let's say. Uh, I don't even think there was an Unpub then. But ever since I saw those shirts, I thought I'd look really dapper in a G-Dong shirt. <laughs> and uh, no, it's 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 really nice, to, to be honest, um, and, and sentimental for a moment. During COVID, you really can't get to know new people when you move into a new place. Like, nobody's opening mm-hmm. their bubble for some guy from hundreds of miles away. So it's been really nice to be like, no, 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 I'm part of G-Dog. Like, I, th- this is my family now. I- I'm in the slack. <laughs> yeah, yep. Once you're in the slack, you don't go back. Like, it's, you're there forever. <laughs> you can move. It doesn't matter. It'll follow you around. And once you're in, you're in. Yeah, so let's uh, let's get to know you a little bit better. So how long have you been designing games in general? So I started designing games around 2012, 2013 as a hobby that was intended to try and you know really make finished games and play them and maybe get them published. But I think like a lot of folks who design, I always designed little games and new rules for games and so on. Uh, that was that was a big part of my my childhood. And uh, it was only that right around 2010, I had my first kid and uh, actually it was 2007, but around 2010, I was sort of like, I need to stay home. I need to have different kinds of hobbies. I can't be out carousing and drinking and, you know, like I need to like settle down a little. So I went back to board games as a hobby and put myself out into meetup groups and got like a whole new gaming life that. Up until then, I was really just, you know, gaming with, like, my family. And uh, like a lot of other folks, you know, when I get into something, I try and do it also. So, you know, I got into, you know, DJing, and so I made a lot of really bad mixes. And, you know, I learned how to play guitar, and, like, I managed to gig a little, but, like, I'm terrible. But I enjoy doing. I, you know, I that's part of the fun for me is to try and not just consume it, but also create it. And with games, it just worked a little better than some of the other things I've tried. And so I I was successful in getting games completed that people were enjoying and then ultimately in getting published. 
So have did you design like in other mediums? Like we we know a lot of people who were in video game designs or something like that. Or is your um do you have other experiences kind of adjacent to design that carried over? Not really. Uh, I do. I did some teaching, and there's some similar ideas that go into crafting lesson plans and and in class experiences. But even that was sort of a side gig. I taught in supplementary schools. And my my main other creative pursuit is um, I, I write and I speak. So for me, game design is probably the most I don't want to say the most creative thing I do, but sort of in that crafty, creative-y kind of way. And and I've gotten, oh my God, so much better at so many of the things that I remain terrible at, but was really awful at through game design, you know, the graphic design and the visual design and UI, UX stuff. And that's been tremendously helpful to me in all parts of my life. It's just, it's, it's a phenomenal, enriching hobby. Also so, filled with humiliation and rejection, but, you know... <laughs> <laughs> also yeah. very entertaining such is the way of life and games so when you were getting started with some of that design stuff was um i'm sure that there are certain things you thought or you had heard or maybe were expecting of of your experience designing games was there anything that surprised you and how significantly different it was than what you imagined at the beginning well one thing that surprises me to this day and Doing it for eight years, you'd think you'd stop being so surprised, but I continue to be surprised by how much more valuable five minutes of playtesting is than five hours of talking and thinking. It's incredible how you learn this by doing it. It's just so full of data when you sit and experience it and you're like, oh, this isn't what I intended at all. And and you even sort of have a better idea of what to tear up. So that's probably the big one. The, the other one, which surprised me, but maybe ended up breaking in my favor a little bit is that so much of design, of succeeding as a designer who is interested in being published is relationship management and communication and networking. And for some people, that's like a horrible thing. And there are incredible designers who want to sit in the workshop, in the basement, in the back of the cave and do that part of it. But I, I've always lived sort of between the worlds. I like doing that stuff, but I like talking to the people and I like connecting and I like just hearing people's stories and, and walking into a room and knowing six people and being like, oh, right, we played that game of yours last time. And, with, you know, so I didn't think that my sociability or my extroversion was going to help in being a game designer, but it's probably one of the most important skills that I have. Yeah, I find that uh, that having connections and even like advocates in, in certain areas is always useful, like not just not just in game design, but yeah, like you said, kind of everywhere. That's kind of how almost the entire world works, from what I've seen. For better <laughs> yeah, for worse. Yes, it is, Mark. Yes, it is. It's, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Look, it it's a lot stuff. easier to know people than to be the very best at something. Unless That's... it's being the very best at knowing people. And uh, then it's... I'm not even there. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's equally hard, maybe doubly hard. But okay. Uh, so here, let me ask the inverse question. What was exactly like you expected it to be? And maybe even sort of this day is, is what you thought it might be from the get go as far as game design goes. What's exactly as I expected is almost nobody will play most of your games and even some of the best work that you do that you think that you do and that you're proud of and that you're excited about. Um, most of it will have no impact on anyone beyond a, a tiny circle. And um, that means that you have to do it because doing it is fulfilling for you. And, uh, you know, if you're expecting to be rewarded in money or fame or, 
or even just sort of a gentle appreciation of, oh, there's a person who's really trying to make good games. That may eventually come, but it's there's no guarantee and it's so pretty unlikely. while i while i agree with that perspective the thing that i find surprising is that that was like an expectation you had at the beginning that like whatever you do no matter how good you are at it almost nobody will really care that's what you thought coming into it yeah well for a couple <laughs> of reasons first off i came in when there was already like a wave of podcasters and writers and bloggers and so on who were talking about their experiences. So I was reading Dan Solis's work when he was blogging and he was posting, as he still does, you know, he's sharing the numbers, you know, and his his earnings from um, some of the games that he made. Games, some of which I thought were spectacular and better than anything that I'd hoped to make. And, and it was pennies, you know, and... He, so I'm also like, I run a business, and so it wasn't too hard to run the numbers and talk to a couple people mm-hmm. and be like, oh, so your $50 game will earn you as the designer a dollar. And most games don't sell out a 3,000 copy print run. Got it. Check. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, come and, across and as... just, I, I don't think that I'm better than like most of the world at designing games. There's very, very, very few things that I have less self-confidence about than like my abilities as a game designer. I do it because I really love it. And when a game comes <laughs> together, it's just awesome. And I'm really proud of some of the stuff that I've been able to make that I think is good. But I didn't come in expecting it. I didn't come in thinking that I had something really, really special to offer. I came in thinking, I'll go to a convention and there was a speed dating event, so I'll sign up for it. And I signed up for it and I put my game on the table and somebody said, wow, this is really interesting. I'd like to sign this. Now, this was 2013 when they were signing anything. If you put a rule book under an apple, people would be like, oh, that's that. That looks good. We'll sign that. So, you know, (laughs) and that game didn't get made, by the way. (laughs) Right. But no, but I mean, I I remember uh, Coin Age. Oh, what's his name? Um, uh, he designed Ex Libris also. He's a great graphic designer. Adam McIver. Adam. Right. So Coin Age came out. It was like a card and you bring like your change to it. And it's like this area majority-ish sort of game. And I looked at it and I was like, it's kind of super clever, but also kind of like, wait, what? This is a product? You can't make any money off of this you can't hit a market with this like this is this is like a really cool fun thing and like there were a whole bunch of games running around like that we made some of them you know what i mean they're, they're super fun jason tagmeyer made a whole business out of publishing you know some of the best ones of that sort of nature but yeah i had no illusions that this was a money maker i didn't think this was a career uh, you know and 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 that's okay you know like i'm really i'm really psyched that my hobby is this engrossing and has led to so many awesome connections and and just i get to do this and it's fun yeah that's interesting because yeah you come off like a very practical and level-headed sort of guy it's interesting because while i may be level-headed i'm supremely impractical and i mean josh (laughs) josh is neither practical nor level-headed so neither one (laughs) so so we'll uh we'll get all angles uh with this one (laughs) (laughs) well that is very cool so thank you for this first timer palooza with isaac shalev experience (laughs) well let's move on to our next segment the tell me something good segment tell me something good this is where you say something that is good 
worth hearing. Who's got some news? Some good things love, to talk about. I love that you say this is, you're like, tell me something good. It's like the news. I'm like, have you seen the news? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the news in that there's at least some similarities that we're it's conveying real bad. some sort of information. This is similar to the news in the sense that we are looking at talking heads in a box and words are emerging from their mouths. Yeah. It is unlike the news in any other way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will, I will tell you something good. My son is now moved on from diapers to, uh, underwear because he's being potty trained. So Mm. let's just hope he, he does well. It's the first day really. So we're going to see how it goes, but that means I am done with diapers for my life, which will be amazing. For your entire life. Well, mm-hmm. just wait till you get 85. <laughs> there, there are two phases in every person's life. There's, there's the time where people wipe your poo, and there's the time <laughs> that you wipe other people's poo. But it's a rondelle. Yeah, yeah, it's a rondelle. It's a rondelle for sure. On the board game side of things, I will say, I will speak for Mark and I, mm-hmm. since it's our game. Town Strike has at least showed uh, or posted some pictures and stuff of the cover and actually in a physical box, which is always basically the most exciting point for me is like seeing it physically in a box that's shrink-wrapped or whatever. So I'm good now. Like, I don't care what happens to the game. I know it physically exists in the world. So um, yeah, they when, got when some... does it release? So give us give us the street dates. I don't, I don't know, all... Mark. I don't know all the details, but yeah, so they they printed this. It was just some uh, early prototype copies for for reviewers and previewers. Small run in July because we want like plastic molded bottle caps. So they're going to do a small Kickstarter run to kind of just fund that aspect of it for the molds or whatever. Because there'll be like bottle caps and there'll be stacking and stuff. And I was able to to get a couple of 3D modelers from work just to do it for freezies, for niceties. (laughs) (laughs) So... Hopefully we'll get that in there and it'll be, be a slick deal. But this one's been a long, long time in the works with me and Mark working on it. So mm. decided to put it out in the world. Congratulations, guys. That's exciting. Um, it'll be neat. I'm pretty pumped. The tone of his voice really carries the excitement. Yeah. Phenomenal. I've, I've got uh, a game coming out with WizKids called Waddle Downtown. So this is a game in which uh, you're moving penguins all around to different locations and scoring points by playing cards. I know, unique. Scoring points points with cards. Weird. But uh, it's got penguin eeples, and that means it's going to go gangbusters, and everyone's going to buy it and post photos of penguins on Twitter. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, (laughs) Game drops February 15, I want to say. So maybe that's Valentine's Day. That's possible. No, February 15th is my oldest daughter's birthday, which is the day following Valentine's Day. Oh, right. February 15th is National Apology Day. Right. Yeah. In fact, yeah. It. the 14th is my wife's birthday and mm. Valentine's Day. So I'm... It's so you've real, been saving up. Yes. Um, yeah. I see that you, you, you had a co-designer, I guess, on Waddle Downtown. I did. I co-designed it. So this was actually a, a phenomenal sort of show up to places and talk to people and good things happen. I went to Tabletop Network, which was a convention for game designers, for professional development for game designers. And I use the word professional really loosely. Uh, But the idea was that it was no publishers and no public. It was just designers. And we were hearing lectures and seminars and having programs to further our design knowledge. And one of the presenters was Raf Koster. Now, Mm. Raf Koster is a much, much, much smarter business person than those of us who go into design to make money because he went into, you know, video game design where there's money. Yeah, he did Ultimate Online, didn't he? 
so he did Ultima Online. He did Star Wars Galaxies. Like he's an actual yeah, yeah. famous person, and uh, he was naturally one of the instructors, you know, or presenters or whatever at this thing. But uh, I basically, whenever I looked at the schedule and was like, "Oh, I'm not sure if this session for me. I'm not sure if that session is for me." I sat at the table right outside the session room and played games with Raf Coster and James Ernest. And you can't convince me that I made the wrong choice. I think I did, you did uh, not make I the wrong choice. Good there. <laughs> But we played their prototypes, and Raph had this prototype of a game called Pebbles, which was like this very stark white and black stones, and you play cards, and it's two-player, and it's, you know, very, um, it's somewhere between sort of Japanese formal and bourbon and cigars in a wood-paneled room on leatherettes. Like, it's just, you know, really classy and strict. And I was like, this is really cool, and it would be great if you could sell it in this market. And to do that, it probably needs to go to four players and probably needs to be a little less tight. And he was like, well, if you want to go to town on it, here's a copy. And uh, <laughs> sure enough, you know, so so I actually took a couple of his prototypes and did some development and design, development and design. And eventually, you know, this thing that became Waddle Downtown that became a game about penguins, which, by the way, Dan Solace did the art direction for, is is now going to be available to all of you for the low, low price of, I don't know, less than a million dollars. And uh, it's pretty low. Yeah, no, it's uh, we're practically giving it away. But uh, but yeah, so check it out. It comes out soon. I for everybody else's <laughs> sake and not for mine. I hope that it doesn't sell out on launch. Yeah, <laughs> I would hate for you to miss it. I, you know, can you imagine you listen to this podcast and you're like, got to get the penguins just missed and you missed it. Oh, yeah. Oh god, miniature market sold out. Want to be notified by email of when we'll be back in stock? <laughs> <laughs> Mark, what's good on your end? Oh, I don't know. We got uh we're getting our basement bathroom renovated. It's mostly back up and running. It's crazy. So I work down here during during so the day. You use the whole basement as a bathroom. <laughs> Yeah, he the does. Entire... That's, the, that's why it has to be renovated. <laughs> what I heard was my basement bathroom. Yeah, my basement bathroom. So I've got my oh, basement consists I... of, of two rooms. One of the rooms is a bathroom. One of the rooms is the room I'm sitting in right now. It's got computer, television, an Xbox. There's a keyboard, some drums. I mean, some... You, you don't tell me what room is the bathroom. Yeah, so this one, <laughs> this one is not the bathroom. I do not have a drum set in my bathroom presently. So yeah, we got some work done in there, and they're wrapping it up, and it looks really nice. It uh, right now it smells like fresh paint, which is just a side effect of it being painted, but it looks nice. That's the good news. Plus the top pop coming out, we saw the pictures of the physical early preview copies, so that's pretty cool. So yeah, that's all good stuff. But now I would like to talk about the reason that we're all here this evening, and that is to discuss this idea of expectations. Now let me set the scene: human beings exist <laughs> some of them play games when they when they see a game when a person sees a game on the store shelf um i know this is at the very beginning you what happens is you know maybe they maybe they see the cover of the box maybe someone told them the name of it or somebody you know kind of summarized how how you play it from that beginning certain types of expectations are starting to form with this person about what this game is going to be like how it's going to feel to play it, what it's going to do, what it's going to be like, all sorts of that stuff. And it goes from then on, you know, maybe they open up the rule book. Maybe they buy it, open up the rule book, you know, read it, whatever. As they start to play it. Or open up the rule book, realize it's eight, 
and a half pages long, close the rule book, put the game back in the box, and put it back on their shelf. Yeah, there's tons of little things that that either set different expectations, maybe, uh, you know, how much time do they think it's going to take? You know, how many components are there? You know, it's available on the store shelf. I'm standing in Target and I can see it. Or I'm standing in a hobby game store and I see it. Or like, you know, I can't find this in any stores, but it's in this online place and it costs 150 bucks. You know, all this, tons of different things can set expectations. And some of those are things that designers can impact. And so what we wanted to discuss was how do we manage those expectations from the perspective of things that we as designers can impact. And so that's what I want to talk about. And we can go into whichever direction we want to, but... That's kind of the setting. That's what we want to get into. I mean, does anybody have any places you want to start with that? Well, I would just say, uh, in addition to that, too, is really thinking about how uh, the expectations while you're kind of you're onboarding yourself in the game and playing the game, right? Like, I expect a worker placement game to work this way. I expect if I have a hand of cards or the best one, if there's dice, I expect to roll them and. I think a lot of times designers really enjoy kind of defying expectations, but usually at the expense of the players don't enjoy that as much, and definitely not the publishers because it makes it more difficult to kind of communicate the, the end product. If you're going to do that, I think you need to pick your, your, your one thing if you're going to defy expectations and then hold true on the other sides. Because a lot of people want to break tropes and that kind of thing, but you could go down a a path where you make something that's really interesting to the three of us, but is a disaster for anybody else to come into the game. Yeah, you know, I, I love that you bring that up. The two games that come to mind that I think illustrate this beautifully is Gonstroin Clever and Coimbra. So in Gonstroin Clever, you roll the dice. And when you roll the dice, there are the values that they are. Uh, dice of different colors apply to different parts of your scoring sheet. And there's a wild die and it's white and it all makes sense, right? Like you look at all that and you're like, yep, that's exactly what I would have expected. And the delight and the, the freshness comes from some of the abilities to combo and the way that the score sheet leads you around it in different ways and the bonuses and so on. And then there's Coimbra and it's like so what I rolled is great, but also I have to pay the pips in order to get the action, but then the action is also stronger, so I've coupled all these things together, and that's cool, but I really only have, like, 12 choices in the whole game, even though we roll a whole mess of dice all the time, but I actually only have 12 actions in the whole game, and I'm used to rolling dice all the time, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you play Axis and Allies, you roll dice, you know, you roll, you roll dice five times per combat, so... Mm -hmm. Those two games, and and both were really well-designed games. I mean, Coimbra uh, was not certainly the commercial success that, that Gans was, although Coimbra was not by any stretch of the imagination a failed game. It was a good game. But man, you know, talk about player expectation and how do you teach players what the dice mean in one game versus the other. And you see right there, one is super intuitive and the other it takes, you know, three paragraphs in the rules. Yeah, and something that Josh uh, hit on in regards to that is information I've, I've heard echoed before like if you're going to do something that is different from expectations you can you can maybe have one or maybe two things because the ability of someone to like stay interested when you're doing stuff that it takes so much extra effort to pay attention to something that's not what you think it should be if you do that with everything then of course yeah it sure it might work but like everything takes so much more effort for a person to actually play but if you have a lot of it does what it feels like it should do and there's like one or two things that are maybe different then you can like explore those and and the player is able to to manage that but it's like so i hear that a lot um i mean do you guys think that is generally true and like so as 
follow this rule? I or? Think, yeah, I think it's generally true, and I would really map it to like some other mediums. So, like for instance, like if you're going to make like fantasy, you're making Lord of the Rings, you're making Star Wars, like something that is so fundamentally different than what reality is. You have to ground it completely in kind of the human connection and human emotion and things that people understand so you can have gigantic talking trees and people are like well yeah that's just that's believable i think games have the same kind of concept but we see it a lot more in either television especially television now and movies or even books is something that's believable is usually not real like mario kart is believable when i'm playing mario kart but if you were to tell me what it was, it is, it is it's fantastical. Like, there's no way it could exist. So I think we, we, can, we can kind of apply, and this is, I think, one of the rare cases where we can apply that to games, that same kind of concept of grounding people in what they know. doesn't mean you have, have to always do that. You can come up with better ways to, to solve certain things, which, I like, Wingspan does that quite well. But yeah, I, I, I need to hear a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Too? I'm trying to remember, too. It's one of the re- the way that cards function i'd have to look it up it is just slightly different than how let's say in any euro game where a lot of people that would play a lot of games now i don't know if this applies to wingspan because i honestly would have to go look at the rules and i don't time to look right now but changing that slightly for that that hardcore audience becomes a barrier for them because they're going to really want to assume that it's like every other game they played mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. a new audience wouldn't know anything different and it might actually be better from a game perspective to do the new way but that's the basic concept right and then the other one is just ground like what i was just talking about earlier is grounding it in a sense of believability i think that when designers are going to subvert some major convention or expectation you need to make the whole game revolve around that so like the the greatest example that i can think of is hanabi the convention that you look at your own cards and nobody else can see them i mean it's it's a thousand years old and Hanabi's like, well, what if that was the other way around? And then the whole game is built around that and the communication rules and everything else just is around that idea. Now, later on, you can make more games once Hanabi exists that aren't as centered on that subversion, that they can build off of it. Now that you've all played Hanabi... Let me give you a game that uses that, but it's not. That's not the centerpiece of it, and and that's great. But when you, as a designer, are thinking, "Hang on, I'm changing something that everyone is expecting a certain way." If you're going to do that, make sure that it's crucial for your game. That that's what your game is all about. Otherwise, you're just being clever for clever's sake, you know. Because if it didn't need to be that way, and you're just doing it because you think it's cool. Well, there's a lot of people who are expecting things to go a certain way and you've thrown a spanner into their works. Did you need to do that? Like, are you getting a reward for that? Is there, what's, what's the return? Josh, the thing you mentioned when you were talking about Wingspan that, um, that connected with me is that you said the, the way they did something. <laughs> you mean when I mentioned Wingspan and forgot how it worked? Yeah, yeah. you vaguely mentioned something. <laughs> but the thing that you said was that this way may have been better for new players who maybe are not currently hobby gamers, but it may be more difficult for hobby gamers because those different audiences, one of them would expect it to work a different way. One of them just doesn't have an expectation one way or the other about how something would work, which is interesting because just who the game is intended for kind of that bakes into it several 
preconceived expectations. You know, like I want to just spend a little bit of time just thinking about what are some of the what are some of the expectations that an, an audience might have if you're like designing for a hobby market or designing for casual players or family players or you know someone who just might see it at the store and buy it for their kids and they don't really play games themselves. Yeah, because they definitely have different sets of expectations. Well, yeah, and I think usually you set out when you're making your piece of art, or at least in games, you're like it's some kind of fantasy fulfillment to some degree of like I want to do this thing, and that's also how I design, right? I want to I want to do this thing. Now, if you don't get to do that thing, or people don't per- they what they perceive what the experience is going to be doesn't match up with what they get. And sometimes it can be a positive, but those are rare, rare gems. Majority of the time, it's a negative. And I think what happens with the hobby side versus the casual side is like, so the hobby side will see a certain kind of art in like a Euro box. And I'm like, all right, now what I want out of that, what I would prefer to have is like a 90-minute crunchy mathy thing. It's probably 90 minutes. And if I have to teach people, it's probably two hours. Whereas... No, like a casual audience would see it and it would just look like dingy old like they don't even want to it doesn't communicate what's in the box to them at all that's why like uh, you go to target i feel like you see a lot of the mass market stuff is people laughing on the box with like a fart joke because people are like i want to laugh about farts right like of course i do i'm a grown adult i want to act like i'm 12 and then you'll throw the money down and there's a little bit of that fantasy fulfillment i think also games tend to play on the the fantasy fulfillment of bringing your family together right whereas maybe the hobby is bringing your friends together oh yeah i think with some of the hobby games like so as someone who is familiar with the hobby market (laughs) if i see a box i look at how big it is and usually that suggests something about how much stuff is inside and usually the stuff that weighs more you know, has more bland colors and is a little bit bigger. I'll be like, yeah, 90 minutes, maybe more. And it's going to have like a bunch of numbers and stuff. And it kind of creates that sort of expectation that, that I can see it and know it's like that. But, you know, smaller games that, you know, cost 20 bucks or less or something. I'm like, okay, because of this is the price point. It's got a more colorful box. It's got a smaller box. It's communicating to me, you know, there's got fewer components in it. It's going to be 30 to 45 minutes probably. And it's probably going to be something either like a two-player game or like two to four or a six-player game or something like that for like a lighter, funner, uh, more easygoing experience. But I think that people who are not accustomed to the hobby market, they just see games in general and they're like, I expect this maybe will take, like maybe the expectation for many people in that audience would be like 30 minutes, no more than an hour Something that I can probably sit down with the family. The rules are something that I can pop it open, read the rule book out loud to the people at the table, learn it on the spot, and then play it and still like not have spent too much time. Like That's a set of expectations that I think just component count and some of the marketing stuff, which is a little bit outside of the designer's uh, realm to influence as much, communicate. And I think that designing games that fit into those categories as long as they are getting to those audiences, will succeed more if they hit those sorts of expectations. You know, I think that stuff is self-reinforcing almost to the point of being self-defeating in that there are there are publishers who know who their market is and sell to their market. Uh, GMT, Splotter, probably two good examples. And they have an aesthetic. And it's true that their aesthetic is less graphically sparkling and doesn't depend on really sharp illustrations to attract eyeballs because essentially they're talking to the same audience and they grow that audience really through word of mouth, not through marketing, you know, and and they will never be major publishers with mass sales unless every now and again you can't, you know, you, 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 
capture lightning in a bottle and you make Twilight Struggle. Holy cow, the game sort of, you know, explodes into something else. By the way, I love those games. I love those publishers. There is nothing wrong with wanting to do that. And actually, it's quite beautiful that you can make, as a designer, games for a certain market. You don't have to care if that market is 30 million people or 30,000 people. But I think that, wow, do we cap ourselves when we take these tropes that have developed over time, the beige German game, and kind of reinforce them, refeed them into ourselves. Because the truth is that if you walk into a game store with someone who has not played hobby games, who's not a hobby gamer, the experience that they have is some combination of delight and surprise and a little bit of terror and a little bit of like embarrassment and just, holy cow, there's this whole world of stuff and it all looks fun and awesome and some of it's bright and some of it's dark and some of it's, you know, grim dark and some of it's taffy. But wow. And especially as adults, because it's like you made this whole place to delight me and it's not a sex shop. That's not like the normal thing. Like we normally walk into grocery stores and dentists and, you know, all kinds of places that are not meant to delight us. So I really feel like the complexity of a game is not really the barrier. I mean, we spend a lot of design work trying to make complicated things pull off elegantly. I I I agree. I think it's about motivation. I think that if a player is motivated to play the game because of the promise that it holds, they will overcome other barriers. And that's why Wingspan succeeds. Yeah, well, and I also, I mean, basically the promise is the fantasy fulfillment aspect of it, right? Absolutely. I think what our obligation then is to make all the different elements, because as designers, we have decisions about each and every element. Make sure we're setting the expectation with how we lay that out. Like if there's a place to put a piece and it's a circle and there's no other circle pieces, make sure it's a circle spot where you put it. Like Mm -hmm. that sounds ridiculous to say, but I swear five out of 10 times, that's not the case. Absolutely. If you're going to lay two tiles down next to each other, they should look good next to each other. They should tessellate. The road from one should connect to the road of the other. You know, like all that. I mean, Carcassonne was amazing for that map that it builds out, which has nothing to do with the game in a sense, right? Like all the data on those tiles, the game design data, it's irrelevant. But it's so cool when you you could put this tile any legal place and it looks great. Why does it do that? I want to do more of that. Yeah, exactly. Like with Coal Baron, like you slide the mine the minecart up and down. Like you do that, you do that before you even know what the rules of the game are, right? It's basically like, oh, I'm inter. This is telling me how to interact with it. And I think too often we forget about that first experience of how I'm going to interact with these pieces. Like I need to pick this up, make it. It needs to be thick and heavy. It needs to feel good to place something down. Like if you can build mechanics that reinforce your action as the correct way to do it, especially if you have something really weird like turn order that changes, right? How Mm -hmm. can you make that so it just happens through the normal course of play? Like upkeep to me is the death of expectations, right? Because it's basically like stop, have what would should be a computer doing this thing, you're like, you have to switch your whole mode from, I want to play this and experience this, this it, game. It's, it's disconcerting, uh, right? It's so, yeah. it's so disruptive. It's yeah. Hey everyone, can you stop having fun for a minute? 
that would be great for me as the game if you stopped having fun for a minute and took care of me. And then you could go back. It's like changing your kid's diaper. It really is. It's, you know, yeah. I would love to play this game, but I need to change a diaper. I'll be right back. And you have to do it, or you can't, like, you can't just keep playing. No, you cannot. Not the smell will keep you from continuing <laughs> to play. No, I, you know, I, there's one point in there that I want to poke at, because I agree with, like, everything you said, and yet I'm troubled by this one thing. On the one hand, we like when the good thing to do, the thing that helps you win in the game is also delightful, right? And we try and make those (laughs) things happen together and it's so satisfying and it's wonderful. But I wonder about that a little bit because it's bad enough that my move was crappy. Did it also have to feel crappy? You know what I mean? Like, it's bad enough that I'm losing. Can't I at least do a cool thing or make it feel good? I think a lot of games that involve building, a lot of games that sort of have that... Sometimes it even goes to the point of multiplayer solitaire, which, by the way, is a game mode I happen to enjoy a lot. But I build my thing, and yeah, you're right, I didn't make the best move. You know, I think about um, Gilhova's The Networks is a great example of this where there are just definitively better moves that you should have drafted that show. It could support more viewers. You would have made more money from it and so on. And that was the right show. And it's like, yeah, that might have been the right show. But I wanted to, I don't know, put Stephen Colbert in a drama. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's the actor that I had. It wasn't Stephen Colbert, obviously. But, you know, the combinations of his sort of caricatured actors and caricatured shows sometimes create some hilarious combinations. And that's just what I wanted. And it felt real good to do it, even though it wasn't the winning move. Maybe we owe the delight to those players whose expectation was not to win at all costs and to defeat all comers, but to play this really cool game and at the end somebody wins and that's awesome. Yeah, like an expectation of a game, it sounds like from this uh, from this angle is that, yeah, when I play it, I'm going to just maximize my enjoyment is kind of an expectation. Is that like, well, is that our expectation of the designer from the gamer and maybe that's what's wrong? Well, I would say with the networks, there is some expectation that doing that kind of stuff, that is part of the fun elements of that game. Now, the more you can allow people to make those decisions while still going forward in their strategy to win, the better. I mean, that's how you're ultimately satisfying. But if they're doing like a little bit of a suboptimal thing or really want it less to be about suboptimal, just a different direction, because that game is trying to tell you, like, do some of this funny, weird, fun stuff. So you might as well. One thing that I did in Rocky Road, and people keep trying to tell me that they kept trying to change it, which is there's no hand limit. You can draw cards forever because kids are going to play this game, and I want them to feel delight and cleverness in doing combos. Well, kids are not, they might not be as good as adults in terms of optimizing stuff, but if they have 15 cards in their hand, they can take a minute and do an amazing combo just like you could do. And they will, and they do. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of like eight-year-olds really like it is because they can pull that off. And there's kind of this, like again, Mar- I'll use Mario Kart since they're you know, like a gigantic rocket or whatever for them to kind of catch up real quickly. That coupled with whoever's in the back, it's their turn, kind of allows them to have a delightful, fun thing and still feel like they're winning without punishing. It's so weird where other players want to punish the other players, even if they know they're going to beat them. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. But <laughs> I you know what? I, I, I'm playing through the ages on the app and I'm in this one game and I'm, I'm like way out ahead. 
And 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 I'm not like a great through the ages player, but I happen to have drawn into exactly the right things and everything that I hoped for came true. And I'm like way out ahead. And we're in the third age and I'm winning on culture and I'm ahead in military, not like enough to be like an ogre about it, but I'm ahead. Like I'm not vulnerable to anything. And I have this opportunity to play the Manhattan Project, which is a wonder that makes you much, much stronger militarily. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I do this, I can pivot into like a war strategy and beat down everybody in the last two turns with like violent wars. Now, I'm going to win either way. I mean, it's assuming I don't like totally mess up or whatever. I'm, I'm likely going to win either way. But all of a sudden, I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, I'm going to invent nuclear bombs and throw them at everybody. And everyone's going to feel terrible at the end of it. And then I was like, Isaac. Why are you so excited that everyone's going to feel terrible about things? Because it's fantasy fulfillment. (laughs) Right. And I can't help that I'm a horrible person who has terrible dark fantasies. I can't. All I can do is fulfill them in through the ages with random strangers (laughs) instead of, I don't know, taking over Italy. That's that goes back to the expectation. What do we owe the player? What does the player want from the game? from a game, from any game, that we as designers are trying to enable for them. And maybe, I don't know, I've never thought of this before, but maybe that's the difference between sort of the Eurogamer and the American-style gamers, that the Eurogamer wants to fulfill the fantasy of being so much more clever than everybody, and the American gamer wants to fulfill the fantasy of, I am so powerful! Honestly, all the game I like are right in between, like are both those things, right? Like I want to be clever. I want to be smarter than you. Like it's it's a, like straight up. Anytime you're playing a game to win and you're using not your physical prowess, it's a mental game to see who's smarter or who's willing to bet more, <laughs> which is usually what I do. I usually lose, but I, I take huge bets. Because you when touch you on win, something, you want to oh, win. I want to win. That win. Way. You're, you're the guy who plays can't stop and refuses to stop ever. You want to win it all in one turn. I just want to. I want to have the story, right? Because otherwise, I'm not going to remember this game of can't stop. But if I do it in one go, I'm going to remember. But I think you pointed the kind of that Euro being clever part of it, and talking about expectations. Is I think there's a part in a lot of those games where you can see the expectations of the players that the games has set for them breaks it, and that's when you do in-game scoring. And people have been really pushing and close. And they've been investing in a certain way. The The game's been communicated to them. Like, you've been gaining points. You're doing well. You're going down this path. And then you get to in-game points. And all of a sudden, somebody else just has 30 points and jumps way in the lead. And, like, you have nothing. And then I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, that's, you know, that's BS or whatever. And really what they're saying is, my expectation was if I went down this path, I would be competitive. I would be close. And then the rug feels like it gets pulled out from underneath them. Which... The trick works because they don't really remember. They can kind of dismiss it, right? They'd be like, ah, well, without in-game scoring, I, I did really awesome and it worked fine. So it does work as a trick. But I do feel like it is going against what their expectation was as they were playing. It sounds like, though, like, so maybe a player would have an expectation. So maybe maybe it's true that, yeah, people who enjoy the Euro-style games are often people that might come in with an expectation of, yeah, let me let me use my superior brain to win the game. And, uh, you know, maybe people who more commonly like, I guess, a Maris-style game are coming in with the expectation that I'm going to be able to amass all this power. So while those are expectations, it's feeling like, you know, those might just be baked into the person. Is there a thing that, like, a game can do to either create an expectation that, by the way, this is going to be a game where you use your superior intellect to win, or this is going to be a game where you accumulate power, or if not set it, at least 
communicate it so that the people who play it don't go into this Euro-style game thinking that they can just chuck some dice and, and win. I mean, what are what are the ways to either like set those up front or communicate them up front if you're just trying to make sure you get it in front of the right people? I mean, this is where I think UI or um, kind of graphic design comes into play a lot. I honestly think publishers need to start listening to designers a lot more of why they chose the number of spaces on the score track and why they chose where this deck of cards is placed and why they chose because every one of those things is setting the expectation for what you can do inside of that game. Like if the score track goes up to 50, say, that gives me a frame of reference. If the deck of cards is like six tall versus, you know, 150, that also tells me kind of an expectation of what those things are. If there's four keys and I have spaces on my player board for four keys, I'm like, I'm going to get all, I have to get all those things. Or if something's covered up versus additive. So like if you have four cubes and they're all covered up and you're revealing things, you kind of have the expectation at some point you're going to get all of them off. So versus what you're, you're saying up track. sounds like foreshadowing, you know, the way that books and stuff do it. But I... You're, you're hinting, by the way, here's a fat deck of cards, suggests we're going to go through lots of cards. Or uh, this game includes 10 dice, suggests you're going to be rolling 10 dice. Or the score track goes to 150. You're going to be getting over 100 points. Things like that is like, before you even read the rule book, you can look at it. There's some things that foreshadow what sorts of things may happen. Is kind of what I mean, I'm hearing you say. Yeah, we've lost some of it digitally. But like before you go buy a book, you knew what kind of book you were buying. Just buy <laughs> but how, how much were you willing to invest in this, whatever the story is? Because of just the pure size of the thing. But it also, I think, really, it, you can get in the art and that side of things. But I'm talking about more of the mechanical interface for the players. Because I think as designers, uh, we adjust that stuff all of the time. And we I, we almost take it for granted, the level of knowledge and information that we're putting into it. Because we'll be like, oh, well, a graphic designer will clean it up and make it better. Well, a lot of times they'll ruin it. A lot of times <laughs> they will make decisions without the knowledge of how the person's interacting with the thing. And that will lead to problems in your game that were never there before. There was an example where basically me and Nat Levan have a game where you, you roll dice, then you pick some and they're locked in. So you can't touch them anymore, right? And you roll the next dice for the next round. And some of those then become locked. And people kept picking up the dice that were locked, which is bad. Like the game, you can't have the game if people do that. So finally, to solve that problem, I cut a hole in the player board. And that's where you put the dice that were locked to use them. Well, then no one ever picked up the dice that were locked. They never asked me questions about it anymore. All of it just went away because the expectation was, I take this, I put it in that hole, and then I don't worry about it. Yeah. Like, it's, it's astonishing just how some of those changes dramatically change a game. Uh, they dramatically change player behavior. I mean, even going back to the networks, I, I remember playtesting the networks way, way back when it was, you know, New York Playtesters Guild. And like, we would just, it was really a heavy game. And one of the changes that Gil made to it was putting the calculator on the player board. Now, the calculator is basically just a private score track for your current round score. And so it's the simplest thing in the world. You're just adding up your current round score and it's like, okay, 
27, and then you add that to the general victory point track. It's like such a simple change. You really, I mean, from an arithmetic perspective, it's identical. There's why couldn't you just do that on the big scoreboard? Because, because this is easier. I don't know why. I don't know what to tell you. This is so much easier. And any savings that you make on players, um, what do you call it, cognitive capacity are really transformational. I mean, the, the, your ability to then take that and point it elsewhere changes how players play, the way they evaluate stuff. So that stuff is enormously helpful. And and size, like size is one of your biggest things. How frustrating is this? Have you ever played Pillars of the Earth? I have tried to buy that game like three times, but no, <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> and, and it's a pretty good game, but in the middle of Pillars of the Earth is a cathedral that you are building out of big, chunky wooden bits. And of course, the game is about a book that is about the building of a cathedral over a period of decades. It's the sweeping epic story of the rise of a medieval cathedral. The function of the cathedral in this game is it is a round tracker. At the end of a round you place an additional piece <laughs> into the center of the board. And this thing is like, it's pretty big. These pieces are, you know, your meeple can walk into that cathedral, pray, light incense, all the things. It is huge. As a player you look at it and you're like, yep. why do I need this? What is, what am I, you know, you're focused on it. There, there are a lot of games where that central element that you're looking at ends up being not the game and it doesn't even matter if the game around it is good you're like what why am i i get that this car is a perfectly fine car and drives and everything is great but why is the horn a clown horn that, yeah, surely the way that, that should mean something. The way that you're describing yeah. it, yeah. if I had seen the, you know, the game and there's, yeah, the big chunky pieces or whatever for building a cathedral, by seeing large pieces and having a central location on the board, I would expect that that's going to be, the building of it is going to be like a major part of what you are trying to do in the game. Just from seeing it, from if I know anything about, you know, the, the book that it's based off of or whatever, and yeah, knowing that it's got this place in the middle of the board and it's, and it's large. It's like, yeah, all right, so building this is what we're going to be doing in the game but if it's just like it automatically happens as the game progresses then that is not meeting what i would expect yeah, but yeah there's, there's a lot of pieces that go into it like neutral color oh neutral color means that any of us could own this right so we're probably competing to possess it and then place it mm -hmm. no it just happens at the end of the turn <laughs> Why? Yeah, yeah. What? Why? Oh, well, we we wanted to sell it on the box. You mentioned the networks and just moving that thing to the players kind of board, right? And I think that's because in that game, because I played in Metatopia and a couple other times. I mean, and the real version. It's because the the fantasy fulfillment, the kind of the expectation is, I am focusing on my station. I am focusing dead focus on what I'm doing in my networks, how I can build it. Which means that's where the real value is. Making a, uh, I keep saying UI because it works in video games, but making a graphic design change to complement that expectation then really just helps. It takes away those barriers, and I think the distinction is for me important. And the reason why I'm bringing it up again is because there's graphic design, but the way it complements the player's expectation of how they interact with the game is the most important part. Who cares what it like? You should care if it's a circle. It should be a circle, but like, <laughs> like, but like it doesn't have to be pretty to figure out what the the form 
German function is. Mark can attest because I constantly bring that stuff up. I'm like, well, I can't read the card from across the table, so this game's dead. Like, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, I think there's, <laughs> I think there's certain, uh, certain components and, and aspects. That, yeah, that's suggesting like a player board. Yeah, a player board suggests there will be things that are mine that are in front of me that I own is kind of a suggestion of a player board. So once you have one, that's setting a type of expectation. A card that has information on the front and information on the back, it suggests something about like, oh, this is going to be a useful it's thing that happens in the game. Yeah, right? It's not hidden because it's got two, it doesn't have a back to hide things. Yeah, um, things that can stack easily, like that suggests, oh, these will probably be stacked in the game. Camel up. Sure, but... Has stacking I, stuff. I, I think it's how you use like those are obvious assumptions based on like how you would interact with the object. But now what how can I communicate my specific deliberate game mechanics with your knowledge of how you want to interact with it? to complement what I want you to achieve and fulfill whatever the, my goal is in terms of like your your experience. So I want to stack the camels and camel up. But I also, I want to be able to quickly communicate to the players that, you know, I'm moving several things at once or like the impact that one piece has on the other. And then Camel Up is done so under the hood, you don't even notice, which is like whatever's on top of it, if it moves, it just carries it forward, right? Well, that's a super complicated concept if you were to not see it done in Camel Up. Like if you were to try to explain that, like if I roll this, it will actually move these three, four forward because they're grouped together. Like it just goes away and you can play around with mechanic to get people to enjoy what is essentially, you know, a crapshoot in terms of a race. So I think like those things are the really pretty things to me when I see them in design. I think that there are whole genres that suffer from kind of frustrated expectations like I think about racing games, racing board games as really being challenged by this, because if you play Mario Kart, there's a fluidity and a speed and there's there's something about how not just how quickly things happen, how quickly fortunes can be reversed both for good and for ill. And everything is dangerous. Every part of it is dangerous. Every turn is dangerous. Every item is dangerous. But also everything is kind of super safe. Like, yeah, you'll bounce around, you'll get back up, you'll get an infinite mushroom, and you'll be right back into things. And then you think about, like, most board game racing games, and they, they're slow, and they're not fluid, and they don't they just don't seem to be speaking to the same audience. I, it's funny you bring that up because Mark can attest that I basically, I'm like, any racing board game is garbage because I can go race for real. Like, I can just, like, let's run around the building. That will be more fun than playing right. a board game Right, I can't game build an game. empire up from the dust, but I can race around the building. So. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, we can just run or do something. Like, but I, I feel you. It, they don't have any rhythm. And or I, or like, if they do, their rhythm is a waltz instead of, I don't know, something yes. frenetic. It is weird how that expectation, like the expectation of a racing game should be, it feels like a race. And it never does. It's actually kind of funny because look at Dominion or, or lots of deck builders. They are, I mean, many games can be described as a race, but like if you really get to it, like Dominion sort of is boiled down to like being that kind of race. Dominion feels more like a race than most racing games. And yet, it's wrapped in this, I mean, totally beige theme, right? Of, I don't know, what are these cards? They're buildings, they're people, they're, I don't know. They, they do a thing that does a thing that gets you money, that buys you more cards. Stop bothering me with the details. Yeah, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> but then you take that exact same concept and you put it in a race. Like you actually make 
a racing game using deck building mechanisms like automobiles, uh, which is sort of bag building, deck building, or even like um, uh, Cubitos. I guess uh, AG's got a new one like this. And as soon as you put it into the race genre, you're like, oh, this is so much worse than a race. Like in an actual race, it's fun and fast and you maneuver and it's, you know, it's awesome. And this is like deck building to be a race. Well, because that also suggests the idea of like genres. You In other mediums, there's genres. If you watch a horror movie, you go into it before it even opens up. Because you know it's a horror movie, you're not going to be coming in with the same set of expectations as if romantic comedy. Even if that's the only thing you know about it. From scene one, you're going to be like, oh, there might be someone in that closet. Or the other one's like, oh, well, I bet, you know, the guy's going to stumble out of the room and be like, hey. You know, or whatever. It's a the genre sets expectations. Now, is that something that happens in board games as much? Are there genres that are defined in such a way that somebody can see a game and know what genre it's going for to know which expectations to have of it? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, like the 18xx games, right? Like, you know what you're getting. (laughs) But what Isaac said earlier, we would kind of loop back around is focusing a game around kind of a, if you're going to do those tropes or and set those expectations, even from a genre genre point of view, which is usually how you do it, because that's what people are going to be able to make assumptions about, is center a game around just one of those things that you turn on its head. Like, for instance, I have always wanted to make a hardcore 90-minute Euro with player elimination. And what I, the way I want to do it is you just have rounds, and if you're not at a certain point in the round, you're just out, which is literally how every Euro works anyway, is just <laughs> telling people. Because I've always wanted to be at a convention and be like, well, I got a taste of that, and I suck, and I'll see you guys later, right? <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know how to do it well, right? That's why I haven't done it. But I think that you can play on top of those things. You just get in trouble when you either want to combine a bunch of different genres to make something new, which I think is a good way to make crap. Or if you are more focused about what the people's expectation is and then lead them down a a path that allows them to discover something new, right? Mm. Versus just slamming stuff together, if that makes sense. When I listen to music that's described as, you know, genre bending or genre crossing or genre lists, I often think to myself if i didn't have like a real good background in those genres i wouldn't understand what was going on in this song and i would actually be totally disconnected from it and would think it was crap that the possibility of doing that you know subversion of genre of trope of expectations depends on people knowing what it is up front it's sort of like you know we've all had this you know you read a shakespearean play in high school and your teachers are like well that's Just a biblical we have not all had this <laughs> no but you, you know you read something and you're like, oh, that your teacher's like, there's a Bible allusion here, and that's alluding to this other thing there. And you're like, I don't, I, cool. That sounds great. I don't have any connection to this. Those are words that are words. But (laughs) I I think that we deal with that. Like, if I think to myself, what game has come out in the last five years that has been this great, like, genre mashup that I would really hold up and say, ah, this this crossed the streams and came out with something incredible. I, I don't know that I've got anything that I'm super excited about. And, you know, maybe that, maybe I can think of a couple of, like, noble failures, like every semi-co-op game out there. But all of them. All of them every <laughs> single one of them. Just all of them. <laughs> it's, you know, I, I really, I've come to the conclusion that semi-co-op does, is not a genre or a game style. It is 
an incomplete design. Like, I didn't finish designing this because I didn't properly incentivize players to do a thing. I, I left them with, like, mixed incentives. So that's my mistake. That's my fault as a designer. Sorry. Uh, now, you, now I just had an idea. Oh, yeah, well, so I guess if if you're trying to go for either a game that combines or subverts genre expectations, like, what do you do to, to make sure that someone goes in knowing what genre you're going for? I mean, is it just as a matter of, like, putting on the box saying... I mean, it's every decision you make in the product like if you have a super colorful box if the cards are little versus big that's why like even the size of the different cards matters as a designer like you pick poker cards for a reason or you pick you know this needs to be a chip or i want this to be a piece of wood like all of those are decisions setting that expectation you're just playing off what most people have already experienced so if you get people coming into the hobby fresh one if they play your game early they'll probably love it if it's good because it will be a new experience for them. It'll be where they learn all those things. That's why we've been saying the same stories for 4,000 years is because there's always a 14-year-old going to buy Dark Side of the Moon. Like, it's just going to keep <laughs> happening. If you, oh, if you get them early, they'll love your thing. So Yeah, but we if, should all be designing games for 14-year-olds is what you're telling me. Absolutely! You want me to design games for the newcomers. Those are the people buying stuff. The people like us have been like, ooh, I'm going to slow down on Kickstarter and stop buying so much stuff. I'll play somebody else's copy. If every small design decision is purposeful, like what type of component, what graphic design elements you use, if all of those are purposefully crafted in a way to complement the core of the game, then games that are similar enough that they should be grouped together as a genre will also have similar like appearance and, and physical characteristics. Like if player boards are crafted in such a careful way they communicate kind of what they're trying to do, Maybe. then right. games that do that sort of thing will have some similarities. So it'll be a collection of tons of small things that, that say, you know what, this looks a little bit, has a lot of similarities to this game, and that kind of groups them into a genre so you can just see where it fits in. And I think that where some of the expectations are not met is if you have a component and you're not really doing it the way that it could be done best if it was like purposefully designed in a certain way you know like carelessly just using well, a component because you think it's cool or the the fun thing yeah, to do well, or something every time you say purposely designed if you when you pick it that is when you're designing it when you put it on the paper that's like whether you were doing it with any any cognitive reasoning of why you were doing it you're still making that decision right like it's still a design choice now it doesn't it just means it might be when you take for granted that you're doing or when you think a bunch about it just means all of those things are on the table i thought i understood this topic a lot better before scythe came out because scythe is a game that completely frustrates your expectations in the sense that scythe was pitched as you know, Agricola meets Kemet. It was pitched as Euro game meets American style combat, you know, epic combat kind of game. And it has all the trappings of a miniatures game with the beautiful sculpts and the large board and all this stuff. And that it's a Euro game. I mean, there's, it's a there's, Euro game. Yeah. if you try to play it the other way, you will be frustrated by the game itself. I mean, even a simple thing. It is very challenging in a game of Scythe on a first or second play to know where your units can go. Just pathing your units. Now, in a regular territory-style game, that's one of the things designers pay an enormous amount of attention to. Should this be a border thing? Is it point-to-point -point yep. movement? Do units communicate how they can move? If I don't care about terrain, then it's a helicopter. And if I do, it's a tank. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And Scythe is just like, I don't know. These units can move on to these territory types. Why? Because I said so. That's the thing you got handed on your starting thing. What? 
I can't fight that guy. He's right next to me. I can't fight him. I, why? My mech doesn't move on to forest yet. Why? Yeah. Well, I haven't upgraded that. How do you upgrade that? Does it have anything to do with, I don't know, getting your mech legs? No. no. And, <laughs> Nothing and, to do with that. But that game appeals to people that like Euro games, that like the flavor of those other things, right? I guess. I, I honestly, like. I mean, well, at least they bought it. Like, like that's the other. They thing. bought it. Of, <laughs> no, but it ha- it's had long-term game. success. It hasn't just sure, been sure, like sure. a bunch of people bought it. Like, I haven't played it, so I, I can't. <laughs> it is definitely a game that I look to and say player expectation and all of this, like how you're setting people up and so on, is one thing, and it's important. But man, gorgeous art and blingy bits and an interesting puzzle even if it's not super tightly thematically resonant with the mechanism and all those really work those do a great job together yeah now imagine if the other part was there too yeah i mean (laughs) sure i would love to imagine it but i you know but and that's when you get star wars and lord of the rings and harry potter right like that's when you get it's sort of like imagine if citizen kane was 87 minutes like, wouldn't have that been awesome? I don't yeah. know what that <laughs> reference means. Well, Citizen Kane is considered maybe the greatest. How movie long ever. is Citizen Kane? Is it I'm 95 sorry? minutes? Is it 95 minutes? It's like minute? 138 or something. I don't know. It's over two okay. hours. It's like two and a half. Yeah. Two. It's like what a prestige movie was like yeah. 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Six, oh, geez. It's, it's, it's not so young. But right. But like over time, we've decided for a variety of reasons that we'd really like our movies to clock in at under two hours. And so can you cut Citizen Kane into a better movie? Maybe better for us, maybe better for our tastes, maybe better for our busy lives, maybe better because I'd be, you know, live tweeting it while I was watching. Can you cut it into a 10 episode Netflix, Netflix series? <laughs> limited series. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like the, the struggle that you're, you're hitting on for Scythe is that many things about it make it appear like it is going to offer an experience differently different than the experience you get when you do it which maybe maybe the miniatures maybe the lack of thematic or narrative connection to the abilities things like that because it was designed with a certain mindset but then then certain things about its appearance and maybe the selling points that it tried to go with that's also what, part of it purposely positioning itself to be that thing yeah it, it's very it's very needle thready in the sense that like there's a lot of people who like the idea of a game with lots of conflict and we're gonna fight grand battles to control the fate of this continent and then when they play a game that does that they're like ow you keep hitting me in the face and it hurts and I don't like that and when I lose I feel bad and I don't like feeling bad and I was supposed to feel great because I was supposed to battle for the destiny of this continent and Scythe is like oh you can do that because you can fight and you need to be worried about fighting but you won't fight and it's okay if you do fight it'll hurt the person who hurt you more like on a points basis it's really bad for you to, like the thing that you attack in every other war game or conflict game is the thing that is undefended by military units and is only resource producing stuff right like you want to attack everybody's farm inside the last thing you attack is an undefended territory with only people in it because killing people is bad for your popularity and you win based on it's like a multiplier so (laughs) you don't ever want to be unpopular the last thing you attack is the undefended farm of another player which is absurd like on its face you're like what world is this but also it's the world of science it's it's (laughs) sort of a self-own though a little bit i mean i don't you know like jamie did kind of sell own himself there with the like the worst thing you can do in this game is be unpopular yeah. <laughs> like, that's what'll kill you yeah so that sounds like maybe uh maybe a purposeful 
differentiation from expectations to appeal to a, a slightly different set of people who who maybe want something that's similar but different. Yeah, it sounds like, you know... It, or, it, or maybe Jamie just knew his players better than they admitted to themselves. You know, they, they said they wanted this, but what they really wanted was a softer experience. They just didn't want anyone to tell them it was softer. Of course, you know, if, yeah, you would, yeah. if you would have told yeah. those players, why don't you play Race for the Galaxy? It's like this wonderful multiplayer solitaire game and you can build your own thing and nobody will come and hurt, hurt you. And they'd be like, that's for wussies. Right, but if I can put a giant mech bristling with guns down and then never attack with it, then and let's let's be real, everybody wants to throw a mech down in like Agricola. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're gonna wrap up because we're getting we're getting pretty long on this one. So, all right, Josh, if anyone wants to get up with you or ask you questions or follow up or tell you how big their hand has ever gotten in Rocky Road Auto mode, how would they be able to well, get up with you? Be Fifty-four or less, because that's how many times. <laughs> Um, you can find me at Joshua J. Mills on Twitter, and your expectation should be, if you at me, that I will reply with some kind of gif. All right, Isaac, if people want to get up with you to ask you where the your Penguin game is that sold out because we aired this episode after the game came out and it sold out on day one, <laughs> what would be the way they can get up with you? I have no hopes of selling out Waddle Downtown without the massive marketing machine that is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Uh, but if folks want to reach me, it's at Kind Fortress on Twitter. Kindfortress.com is the blog. If you reach out to me, you should assume that I will ask you to playtest a new version of Saikatsu, which we are working on now. We're trying to do all kinds of cool things with it, and I would totally love playtesters. So if you're interested in that, we can do it digitally. We got some great opportunities please reach out to me at kind fortress dms are open don't send me things that i don't want to look at thank you like pictures of penguins or cats isaac that's the picture i was most concerned about is the penguin that would be no send me all your pictures of penguins that wouldn't make my wife blush that would be great (laughs) all right well so if you want to discuss this episode or talk to us in general you can visit our guild on board game geek go to podcast.gdofnc.com and that'll redirect you to our guild on board game geek we welcome your feedback we also have a group twitter account that you can follow at gd of nc which stands for game designers of north carolina and that does it for this episode we will see you later peace bye bye